and our gospel this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. The parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the Lord replied, in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks. Good to be with you again. And today in the church calendar, it is Justice Sunday. So we had that reading from about the Good Samaritan, the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure we'd all like to think that in a similar situation, if we saw someone in trouble, if we saw someone who'd been attacked that we wouldn't be like the priest or the Levite, but we would be like the Good Samaritan, that we'd go to their aid, that we'd, you know, get out of our comfort zone, sacrifice a little bit perhaps to help them, uh, to get them back on their feet. We'd like to think that in a similar situation we would be a Good Samaritan. But sometimes the worst attacks on a person don't take place in the street Sometimes the worst attacks happen in the very place where people should feel safe and where they're surrounded by people who should love them. Sometimes the worst attacks on a person take place in our homes. What if today's victim 
that cries out for help isn't a man, like in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not a man robbed and lying bloody by the side of the road. But what if it's a woman? And what if she is your friend rather than a stranger? What if she isn't lying unconscious, but you just start to notice things that are are a bit off about your friend? Maybe a suspicious bruise that she tries to cover up, or a change in her personality. Your once confident friend is now always low. Or other things. Maybe she never has any money. Uh, Maybe she's constantly checking in with her spouse. Uh, or or making excuses for them. Or maybe she's simply absent a lot. Uh, She stops seeing her friends and family. Perhaps the children seem withdrawn. Would we see a victim if injustice looked like that, if the injustice was abuse that was happening behind closed doors? And would we do something to help that person if all we had, all we could have was a suspicion that something wasn't right at home? Would we know what help looks like in that situation? Would we know how to be a good Samaritan in that situation? The statistics about domestic violence cry out for us to be good Samaritans. They cry out for justice. The United Nations, which has been tracking statistics of um, violence against women for over a decade, tells us that 30% of women around the world have experienced either physical or sexual or some other form of violence. 30%. 30% of 50% of the world's population. How widespread is that? I can't think of a greater injustice that is, that is felt by so many people. And lest we think to ourselves well, I can understand that in different countries where the, you know, where the culture's different or there's a lot of poverty. But in Australia, our statistics are bad too. So in Australia, the Australian Bureau of Statistics says one in three women in this country have experienced some kind of abuse. I mean, I could read you out a whole list of statistics, but you can find them easily. One in three. And one woman dies every week. In fact, last week there were two. Two women died last week. Violence in this country is gendered. It is gendered violence. The domestic violence is the leading contributor to death, disability and illness for women in Australia aged between 15 and 44. The leading cause of disability, illness and death. Women are three times more likely to experience violence. And usually it's at the hands of their partner or their former partner. Well, what is domestic violence? We used to think it was just like physical violence, but now we know so much more about it. This is how on a government website it's defined this way. When someone uses violence or manipulation to maintain power and control over someone that they're close to. When someone uses violence or manipulation to maintain power and control over someone they're close to. It can involve violence, intimidation, threats, insults, or psychological manipulation. The abuse can involve a partner or ex-partner, a family member, a child, be anyone in close contact, and anyone 
can find themselves in an abusive relationship. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships and how they should function well. In fact, in our first Bible reading today from the book of Genesis, we read about at the very start of creation, what does it say about men and women? It talks about our great integrity as people, our preciousness, both men and women made in the image of God equally and both equally called to have dominion over this world. It feels to me like the earliest doctrines in the Bible were very egalitarian, both made in the image of God, both called to have dominion in this world. And as we read scripture, we see that families and relationships are the foundation of human life in God's eyes. And they are the key for human flourishing. There are lots of commands in the Bible, lots of teaching in the Bible around family and relationships. Even in the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not covet, respect your, honour your, your mother and your father. There's lots of teaching in scripture that impact on families and relationships. But the Bible also describes how sin entered the world at a very early time. There's a theologian in Sydney by the name of John McLean who's written an excellent paper on domestic violence and the Bible, and he quotes this Latin verse, this Latin verse that says this, corruptio optimi pessima. The corruption of what is best is the worst. And when we look at scripture, relationships and families, they're the best. Like, you know, they, they were designed to be the best you know, the vehicle for the flourishing of the world. And when they are corrupted, it's just terrible. The corruption of what is best is the worst. And sin, the fall, impacts families and relationships. And when we look at the whole narrative of Scripture, we see example after example after example of how sin affects, in a negative way, our families and our relationships. The backdrop, the social backdrop of the Old Testament is very much patriarchy. Male control, economically, physically, a terrible power imbalance um, that these days we could look back and we could say, well, that's going to predict something's going to happen. When we look at that, that narrative scripture, we see patriarchy, we see polygamy, we see divorce, we see abuse, we see family violence, we see sexual abuse. Uh, let me give you a few examples. King David and Bathsheba. I can't believe now that when I was a teenager sitting in church, that was described to me as a case of adultery. King David, who sees someone else's wife and has a relationship with her. Now what we know about how, how abuse always is about power imbalances and those power imbalances being abused, I look at Bathsheba and I think, could she ever have said no? It's not for no reason that in scripture she's not the one that's rebuked in that situation. So there's King David and Bathsheba. There's Jephthah who sacrifices his daughter. There's Amnon who rapes his half-sister. There's Jeroboam, a violent man who abuses his wife, 1 Kings 14. And there's many others. And they're not in scripture as role models, are they? They're in scripture as examples of the terrible impact of sin. If they're examples of anything, they're examples for us to avoid. And then into that comes the gospel. Then into that comes the kingdom of God breaking in. 
and Jesus who said, I've come to free the captive. I've come to heal those who need healing. I've come to release those who are oppressed. I've come to bring light into the darkness of this world. Ironic too, you know, that Jesus is spoken about in scripture as coming from a family line and he's described as the son. Once again, we see families and relationships, they're beautiful things when they're good, when they're good, when they're right. When Jesus walked on this earth in the first century as we know it, the social context of the Roman Empire was still patriarchal, okay? So um, we read in Roman literature about the paterfamilias. It was a situation where women were in complete economic and other dependence on men, where they were unable to inherit, where men had the right to discipline their wives and even to kill them, to force them to have abortions. Um, when we look at Roman literature, we read about this, and when we look at archaeological digs from the first century, we can see the violent deaths that some women suffered at that time. There were some women at the time who were able to accumulate wealth and the agency that went with it, and so that probably accounts for some of the variation we read in the New Testament. The remarkable thing about when Jesus came and preached his gospel of salvation, his gospel of grace and good news. The remarkable thing is that the Christian church grew massively in the first three centuries to the point where, you know, it was the state religion by the third century. Incredible growth. We have never, ever seen such incredible growth since then. And it, it was men and women that came into the church, but historians remark about how remarkable it was that so many women converted to Christian faith in those first three centuries. Why would they do that? One historian, Rodney Stark, suggests that so many women uh, converted to Christianity that in 370 AD, the Roman Emperor Valentian issued a written order to Pope Damasus, quote, requiring Christian missionaries to stop calling at the homes of pagan women because they were so likely to convert. Why would women have been so attracted to Christianity? Well, here's a few suggestions. Christianity is, is a religion of respect for both men and women. When we read the Bible, we see, we see the condemnation of abuse and violence, uh, all forms. We see condemnation of verbal abuse. We see instructions about not to abuse children, to respect children. Uh, we see... Um, teaching about physical violence. We see teaching about how sex should be in a good relationship. We see lots of instructions about how husbands and wives are to love and to mutually submit to one another. We read about the character of God and his attitude to oppression. We read about that in the psalm that we looked at today. The psalm that says this about the character of God and the king who matches the character of God. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He'll take pity on the weak and the needy, save the needy from death. He'll, he'll rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. That's an attractive God to worship, one who wants to free people from oppression. We see the way Jesus treated women, the woman at the well, um, the woman who 
who dried his feet with her hair. Mary, who he praised for her discipleship. Don't be washing up. She's doing the right thing. We see Mary being honoured as the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus, the first one who got to go and proclaim it. Amazing. We see the way Jesus treated women and we see Christianity's, Christianity's ethic of love, love, accountability, family life. We see stories that Jesus told like the Good Samaritan. That's very attractive. It's very attractive to people in our society who are experiencing oppression and it may account for the large numbers of women who converted to Christian faith in the first three centuries. We have a Christian heritage in the West and, and that just makes more tragic the reality of the terrible statistics we still have today, that one in three women in our country have experienced some form of violence. It just makes more tragic the injustice of domestic and family violence. Last Tuesday on the Gold Coast, Kelly Wilkinson was killed set alight, allegedly, by her former partner, Brian Earl Johnson. It was Tuesday. A couple of days later, 48-year-old Lordy Ramadan was found dead in a wooden chest in her Gold Coast apartment about an hour and a half after her partner, Craig Boomer, was found dead. Two in one week. We've all heard the shocking news stories. Who can forget Hannah Clark and her children burnt alive in a car last year? by um, her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter. Who can forget Rosie Batty's son, killed by his dad, his estranged father in Melbourne? All of those violent deaths came after what was probably years, years of abuse in their homes. They came after years of little things that friends might have been able to notice. They came year after years of manipulation and intimidation of threats and insults, maybe reports to the police, psychological manipulation and coercive control. One person has said, family violence will only ever be overcome when we face it in its entirety, not just when we have these kind of tragedies, but when we're willing to face it all the way along. Because it starts with disrespect. So today is Justice Sunday. God is a God of justice. God hates oppression. And the kingdom of a God is a kingdom of good Samaritans. Its people notice. Um, they call out. They rise up to heal and to free the oppressed. The worst situations end up in the press. But this is everywhere. This is everywhere in society because sin is everywhere. Sin affects the whole world. Um, and the church is not immune. In every church I've been in, I've encountered people who have been affected by family violence, either as victims or as perpetrators. And um, Nancy Nason Clark writes this about how domestic violence features in um, church, in church communities. She says, violence is learned behaviour. And it flourishes most when it's ignored, minimised or misunderstood. Early detection and intervention is critically important, but so too is compassion and the application of best practices for those impacted by it. Prevention is the ultimate goal. Religious families are not immune to the frequency, severity or long-term consequences of the problem of abuse. 
When violence strikes the homes of deeply religious women, they may be more vulnerable, more likely to believe that their abusive partners can and will change, less likely to leave a violent home temporarily or forever, often reluctant to seek outside sources of assistance, frequently disappointed by the response of the religious leader to their call for help. Often they believe they're called by God to endure suffering, to forgive their, and keep on forgiving their abuser, and to fulfil their marital vows for better or worse till death do us part. Sometimes they fear that calling emergency numbers or going to a transition house for shelter will raise suspicions about their spiritual maturity. Sometimes religious batterers employ explicitly religious language to justify the violence towards their intimate partners. It's not uncommon for men who batter to manipulate spiritual leaders and to ensure that they alone are the ones that receive the support of the congregation. It's good to know these things. So what can we do? Um, first, I'd, I'd like to mention a couple of things. If maybe you suspect you are in an abusive relationship, um, maybe you suspect that you are in a violent relationship, we can become desensitised to abuse in our relationships. These are things to look out for. Possessiveness, threats, jealousy, put-downs, physical or sexual violence. Don't downplay their seriousness. Protect yourself from harm. And know that there are people to support you. Probably the easiest phone number in Australia to remember, and it's also the name of a website, is 1800RESPECT. It's the government website that talks about domestic violence. 1-800-RESPECT. You can Google it, you can ring it. There's lots of good advice, uh, lots of pointers to support and ways to protect yourself from harm. Perhaps you suspect a friend might be in a violent relationship. And what a great place a friend can have. What great good Samaritans we can be in these situations. That same number, that same website, 1-800-RESPECT, has lots of advice about what to do if you suspect a friend of yours or someone in your extended family might be in a violent relationship. So in the end, the only way, the only thing to do is to check by asking, is everything okay? Is everything okay at home? And if someone doesn't want to talk, just say, well, you know, just know I'm always here if you need me. That website suggests that if they do open up and talk about it, that we're to do these things. Believe them. Listen without interpreting or judging. Don't make excuses for the person that has hurt them. Remember that domestic and family violence isn't just physical. A person who is abusive may do these things, may act in ways that make the other person feel scared, put the other person down all the time, make threats or hurt up the other person, control where they go, how they use their mobile phone, their car, their um, computer, their laptops. Might have a lot of rules about how you're supposed to behave and get very angry when these rules aren't followed. Violence is complex. It's not losing your temper, it's chronically losing your temper. We all lose our temper sometimes, but we're talking about a chronic ongoing situation. And to me, I think on Justice Sunday, it's good for us to think about how we can be the Good Samaritans in these situations and not just close a blind eye, not
not just assume someone will call out for help if they need it, but like the Good Samaritan in Jesus' story, cross the road, get out of our comfort zone and do what we can to help. It is likely that there are people here who have either been affected by family violence themselves um, or are feeling like they might be, and you know, they might be the perpetrator in such a situation. We sing about this. We're saints and sinners. Um, and I knew, you know, I, I thought when I talk about this, I'll fumble. It'll feel awkward because it's the first time I've ever preached about this. But unless we start talking about this, we can't you know, grow in our knowledge and grow in our capacity to deal with these things. Um, it'd be great one day to be standing up and hearing testimony from someone whose life has changed, uh, for, someone, for someone who maybe was violent and, and through the gospel, you know, life has changed for them. To hear about the good stories, we have to be willing to face the difficult situations that some people might be in already. If you've been affected by family violence, maybe in your current relationship or a past one, or when you were a child and it was your parents and you'd like to receive some support via prayer, then at the end of the service um, there'll be some people up here who can pray with you. And again, don't forget that number, 1-800-RESPECT. Um, let me close in prayer for us on this Justice Sunday about uh, domestic violence. Loving Father, we thank you that you bring light to the darkness of this world. And we pray that you would bring understanding and knowledge and acceptance of the truth and that you'd expose what lurks in the dark and bring it into the light. We cry out to you. We cry out that these statistics might change. We cry out to you that the women and children who are victims of violence would cease to be so. We pray that violence in all its forms would cease and that you would give us courage to face this epidemic with all we have. Most importantly, we ask that you would make us your people, the hands, the feet, and the voices for change.